is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. It is the podcast where I pick the brains of the top professional investors in the country and we delve into their own personal investment approaches. We talk about the research process they follow to identify potential investments. We also talk about their best and worst investments ever. And uh, the idea is to find those golden nuggets of wisdom to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Nick Kunz. He is currently a portfolio manager at Sunlam Private Wealth, but he really has a wealth of experience. He has been in the industry for more than 25 years, and he has extensive experience in the management of equity portfolios, derivative trading, alternative investments, and statistical arbitrage. Nick, thank you so much for joining me. I know arbitrage is the process where you exploit the mispricing of the same asset in different markets, but what is statistical arbitrage? Yeah, hi there. Um, She's that intro made me feel old, but anyway. (laughs) So statistical arbitrage is quite a fancy name like most of us do in the financial markets, sounding to make it a bit more complicated than it actually is. But you're right on the definition of arbitrage. You take advantage of of price differentials and and you take the difference between the two. You buy one, the expensive one, you sell the other. Statistical arbitrage or stat arb as the, the hedges like to call it, is when you would take an index. So say, for example, you take the JSC top 40. It's a trade index, you can buy the Aussie futures, and you take the basket of the shares, and the idea is you trade the sort of basket of options on each. Stop me if I'm getting a little bit too complicated. And individual shares, we all know, moves a lot more than, say, an index. And we saw this. Let's take, for example, the last few days, you had Sassel moving 5% or Anglo Gold moving you know, 10% on a good day like yesterday. The gold shares moved so much. But yet our overall index only moved about less than 1%, mm. so it hardly budged. So there's your ARB right there, right? Because what you do is you would actually sell the volatility on the index, which is not moving. So you sell it because it doesn't do anything. And then you'd buy the, the actual what they call the volatility on the basket of shares because they move much more. So you're making money on the ones that move and you're basically willing to sell something that doesn't move. So, that, I mean, that's it in a, in a very simple nutshell. Derivatives have emerged and, and grown a lot in South Africa mm. since the late 90s when we saw the first, what were they called? The uh, warrants. The warrants, the warrant yes. And the wa- then came the CFDs shortly afterwards, yeah. yes. Uh, how, how big is that market currently, especially amongst the retail investors? No, it's pretty much non-existent now. You know, these markets sort of blow hot and cold, I think, and they come into favor and they go out of favor. I think back in the day, the investment banks that were making the markets and a lot of the warrants, which got people first interested in it, I honestly think that back in the day, a lot of people didn't do their homework. So what the investment banks and the market makers were doing, we were mispricing those warrants. They were too expensive than they should have been. Retail investors were overpaying for it. And a lot of that market got, at the end of the day, basically got what they call sort of traded out. Those don't exist too much anymore, but there's still a very healthy derivative market in the background in South Africa, whether it be single stock futures or Aussie futures. I believe that is still very active at the moment. Now, of course, you manage very large portfolios at Sunlum, but do you invest for yourself? Are you an avid personal investor? 
I like to keep my personal investing to the extent that my wife recently said, I want to manage your money. And I said, absolutely not. It's a sign <laughs> of a healthy marriage. And I gave it to one of my colleagues to manage. But um, I actually don't manage my own money. And I'll tell you why. I did find over the years when we used to trade for clients a lot when I was more on the trading front uh, many years ago, I found it, it did become a little bit of a conflict of interest when you're sort of more active in the market and you've got clients on one side and you could be on the other side. So due to that sort of history, I've, I've given it to other people to manage. So no, I don't manage my own money. I give it to someone else to look after. But it allows me actually, funny enough, to be completely unemotional in with someone else's money. It's a lot easier. And that's actually quite interesting. Do you maybe invest in other asset classes as opposed to equities, which seems to be your day job? Uh, I do. I do. I mean, my background, uh, as you said in the intro, is more on the trading side. So um, I've sort of morphed into more long-term sort of money management, but I've still got a little bit of the history of, of the trading side. So I tend to look at, at any asset class that moves as investable. So whether it be bonds, whether it be whether it be equities, whether it be currencies, even I treat all these things, even volatility, I would treat as an asset class as such. As long as it moves and I can get a price on it, I think it's an, an, an opportunity of a risk-adjusted return, I would invest in that asset, definitely. How would you describe your risk appetite? Probably a little bit higher than most, probably more because I've got the scars to prove it. I mean, uh, I lived through the, the times, I lived through the sort of 1990 crash, the, the 08 crash, the 98 emerging market bubble, all those sort of things, and more recently, the great financial crisis. So I am aware of how things move, and I think I've got a fairly good appreciation of risk. In fact, to the extent I still drub in to young traders who ask for advice, like keep on saying how much money can I make? And my first comment to them is, well, you should be saying how much money can't I lose? And that's the way you should be looking at stuff. But that's not the case in the real world. Many no. people invest, they want to make money, they want to make Absolutely. money quickly. And sometimes I don't think retail investors actually understand risk properly. Mm. No, they they would don't. see an mm. investment in Anglos in a similar vein as an investment in, say, a, a small cap like, say, Signia, which is all over the place at the moment. I'll go even further to say that any equity, an ordinary share, in fact, if you look at, if you had to look at a level of risk in the financial markets, pick up a book on the financial markets, any single equity is one of the most risky investments outside of maybe geared derivatives you could probably do as a, as a resale investor. People don't realize they are very risky. I mean, look back at the days of Steinhoff or Sassel when it crashed. You know, these shares can drop 50, 60, 70%. Shares are risky by their nature. But yet it's the best performing asset class. If you speak to any fund manager, they would tell you, listen, uh, let's be conservative. I mm. think we can beat the inflation rate by three or four percentage points. And that is, in equity terms, actually a conservative forecast, especially if you compare it to what mm. equities have done over the past few decades. Yeah, and I think you, I think you have to look at the last, say, you spot on, maybe the last 20, 30 years, you're right, and look at what have they done. The last 10 years, I think the market is, and I think people's, expectations have been unfairly skewed. I think with the behavior of the central banks around the world with quantitative easing, with artificially keeping prices, too much liquidity around, I personally think it's it's allowed people to be rewarded for taking risk. You know, you it's probably a, a conversation for another show, but I mean, you can literally buy anything that went up and you, you thought the central banks have got your back. So I think 
people have been rewarded for taking risks because they've had that sort of central bank put in the background. But you're right, on the general face of it, for us living in South Africa, life is becoming more and more expensive. We all know what the oil price is doing with Ukraine at the moment. Inflation is shooting the lights out. We'll know a little bit this afternoon. It's Thursday here, a little bit this afternoon, uh, what the CPI numbers are going to be like in America. They're going to be probably the level not seen since the 1980s at 8%. So you are right. As a South African investor, or even just a South African, you need to get more than 10, 12, maybe 14% return on your money just to be ahead of inflation. So then it goes back to your point. You can't be sitting in cash. You can't be sitting in the bank because inflation that's so high. So yes, the best way to outperform that is a select group of equities. But let's take a scenario of a normal individual, uh, say a, a person who's also been around and have been looking at the market, watching it, and that person has his or her own share portfolio. I'm not talking about managing your retirement money. I'm talking about, listen, mm. I've got a 50 or 100,000 rand. I would like just to have skin in the game and that forces yeah. me to know what is going on. How good do you think South African retail investors are, especially those in that category? I think they're very good. We spoke of air about the financial literacy of, of the average investor. I think it's gone up leaps and bounds from 15, 20 years ago. And I think a lot of that's to do with the ease of information with the internet world that we live in at the moment. I think a lot of it's to do with education by the likes of the JSC, some of the smaller houses have made access to investing easy. Look at Easy Equities, for example. I mean, they've, they've done a fantastic job about getting the retail investor interested in the marketplace, uh, the education side of it. I, I honestly think, I think it's a great way to and if you've got 50 or 100 grand spare not everyone does it these days but to put it together a basket of portfolio or for your kids or try to put something together i think the tools and the information are easily accessible it's out there and i think it's a lovely way to get started so i think that what, what a lot of the houses are doing in south africa have done a very good job so far and let's talk about your best and worst investments either as an individual or perhaps as uh, as a professional uh, let, let's start first off what was the very very first share you ever bought and what was it <laughs> the first share i bought was i was trading in the uk i was living in london and it was a share called traffic master which actually doesn't exist anymore but those are the days where they would basically it was like an old-fashioned gps and they in london there's a huge problem on the m25 which is like our version of the, of the M1, goes around London and was their way of sort of uh, on your little smartphones back in the 90s. Well, I mean, smartphones were just little LED screens, but they'd work out where the traffic flow and all that was. And that was like, <laughs> that was my go-to. I read about it on one of these sort of penny share guides and you had to get involved. And I put quite a bit of cash into the time. And of course, over time, it went to zero, as these things do when you don't do your homework and you uh, <laughs> take some advice. But that was my first one. I'll never forget it. TFC was the code. I still remember it 25 years later. So that was a miss. What was your best ever one? Sure. I think recently there's been some great opportunities. One that springs to mind, I think, was probably something like NVIDIA. I got involved in NVIDIA about four years ago when I had a presentation by an offshore fund on on where the internet was going with chips and graphic cards. And uh, you know the old adage just in South Africa, you talk about the miners. You, know, you don't want to own the gold miners. You want to own the companies that uh, sell the picks and shovels. You know, it's the old stockbroking adage. Well, this was how I felt about I wanted to get involved in, in the ones that were doing the screens or the graphic cards or the chips. And the video was one of them. And I think I got involved in the low 30s. I think it was $32, $33. And it went up to as high as almost 300 at one point. So it's come back quite a bit with the IT shares. But that was a great investment a few years ago. I've still got them. After your very first investment, mm. have you had any other dogs uh, you picked? 
<laughs> you always have dogs, eh? We've always got dogs. You're like gamblers. We never tell the losers. No, you know, in our business, and I always remind people sometimes when you manage money and sometimes when you're in the market, you just, over time, you just want to make more than you lose. So I've had plenty of, plenty of ones misses. Uh, I'm thinking close at home in South Africa. All of us own NASPAs and Process. That's been a massive disappointment for all of us. Uh, I've got a few of them myself. And for clients, that's been a bit disappointing. Offshore, let me think offshore. Yeah, there's been a couple offshore. We got, got a few wrong or less than too early. I mean, Amazon, we're buying at sort of three, five. It's down under under $3,000 now, but uh, I think it'll come back at some point. So, yeah, there's been a couple people got wrong. Thankfully, I didn't get, I had a couple of clients that got involved in, in Zoom during the lockdown. I, mean, I don't know if you've seen a share price of what that's done. I mean, talk about boom to bust. It's down 80% from what it was. So, you know, there's been this volatility in the market. You could quite easily get a lot right and a lot wrong, but uh, we got more right than we got wrong, but uh, there are plenty that I've got wrong over time. Now, Sunlam Private Wealth has a massive research division or Mm. access to very, very high-level equity research. Do you use that research in your investment decisions? Or let me put it differently, of course you use it, but is that the Mm. sole source of information on which you base your investment decisions? Not by a long shot, right? Anything I can get my hands on, I'll get my hands on. If I'm looking to get involved in a sector or a various theme to invest in, I want to suck up as much information I can possibly can. So, yes, we do. fortunate enough to have access to some clever minds in the Cape who do the number crunching for us at Sunlam. So I use their sort of ideas and, and thoughts as well. And I also have a Reuters screen, which is quite an expensive terminal, which the, the firm pays for, which allows me to get access to annual reports, that sort of stuff. So as much as we've advanced in the, the computer age and you can buy a Bitcoin on your screen in one second on your cell phone, there's still a lot of old-fashioned work goes into it. I'm still one of these guys that goes through annual reports, I look at the charts, I look at the numbers, I look at the comparisons and, and that sort of stuff. So I do use a lot of research that's supplied by institutions, but I also do a, a lot of work on my own as well. But if you ask any amateur retail investor, mm. that individual will say, listen, I don't have the skills to do that research. I don't have the time to do it. And a lot of the decisions are taken by looking at what professional investors are doing. You can see the mm. underlying assets within certain unit trusts or virtually all unit trusts. And they use a gut feeling and they hope for luck. Is that an, an investment? Like the uh, worst investment advice I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, well, a lot of people do that. They, sure they, they buy do. and yeah. hope. Yeah. And, and yeah. does luck play a role in your success? I think luck is always a portion of it. Always. I mean, you look at look at some of these investors over the years, you can't tell me that a portion of that was luck. So luck sometimes goes in your benefit. There's no doubt about it. But there's also a lot of hard work. I mean, look, I'm, I happen to believe that this is one of the very, very few professions in that they are available at the moment that I do genuinely believe if you do your homework and you do the hours and you do your time, I genuinely think that you get rewarded accordingly. And it's it's not like being an accountant where – you know, you can be an okay accountant or you can be a good accountant or you can be a bad accountant. In this business, if you're good at what you do, you make money and you make money for your clients, for yourself. And if you're bad at this business, you lose money and you're out the game. So it's a very black and white business. And I still, I generally err on the side that uh, that if you do the hours and you do the homework, this business will reward you. But yet, if you look at the performances of many portfolio managers, many asset managers, they not always beat the indices and the benchmarks. Sometimes, mm. uh, you know, computer-managed index funds perform really, really well. So what does that say about the prospects of a retail investor? Look, I think you've got to be a little bit careful in that quite a varied spread. So 
I think the the likes of ETFs and passive investors and index tracking has has been a revelation for the private clients. You know, it's a cheap entry for them. That's been a reasonably okay for the last ten odd years because you could have bought anything that's gone up. But I think recently, in the last sort of six months or so, I think you need to be more selective. So I think that the terms have changed a little bit. And, and again, I mean, it's, I think it depends on the investment style. I think personally, I, I, a lot of fund managers, I think, are, are almost too diversified. You know, I think there's, a, there's definitely a detriment to when they talk about div- diversification. The last 20, 30 years, you know, people have portfolios uh, or fund managers have 20, 30, 40, 50 stocks in. I don't think how you can ever outperform the market with that many shares. I'm a little bit on the on the other side. Um, I prefer to have a very narrow band. And, and my sort of history and my experience has shown me if I've rather got 10 or 12 shares, I'll tend to outperform the market far easier. A little bit of lesson for people out there. So if you're gonna if you're gonna put together a portfolio, try to keep it quite narrow. Don't buy too many of, of the various shares. There's a risk to being too over diversified. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Being over diversified, you, you don't hear that term often. Has there any research been done, you know, about this? Plenty, plenty, plenty. There's been plenty of research. In fact, if you look at some of the best managers of the years, I'll take a look at someone like, um, I don't know if someone who's listening to the show will, will know some of the top guys of the last few decades. There's a guy called Stanley Drickermiller, who was the right-hand man to George Soros, which is a household name. He ran the Quantum Fund. I mean, they returned 28% return every single year compounded for 30 years. It's never happened before, and it probably will never happen again. They never had more than eight stocks in their portfolio, ever, at one time. And compare that to a lot of fund managers who have anywhere between 15 or 20. I mean, he's a one-off case, but I can certainly there is evidence out there to to prove that over-diversification is... I mean, if you've got 20 shares of 2%, 3% in each, uh, it's very difficult to outperform an index that might return 10 or 15% your battle. Just lastly, do you look at any crypto assets? Full disclosure, I don't own any. I never have done. I have nothing against them. I think they actually could potentially be a game change in the years to come. So I'm not against them. I just until they're better regulated, it's difficult for me to justify putting client funds them. But I do think as an asset class, I think digital currencies are here. They're here to stay. But I just couldn't tell you which one to invest in right now. But I'm not, a, I'm not against them at all. I think they're a very good asset class when the time comes, when they're usable. Nick, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights. Thanks, Ray. It was a pleasure. Enjoyed it. That was Nick Kunz. He's a portfolio manager at Sunlum Private Wealth. Show me the money. That was the Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Ray for Nikap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the Money Web podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.